Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Today I have Cynthia Angel with me. Now, do you use the acento like Cynthia Angel or do you use Cynthia like however you prefer? It's interesting because now I can say Cynthia Angel and people will get it. Whereas maybe like seven years ago earlier in my career, it would be like Angel. So yeah, so I prefer Cynthia Angel, but Cynthia Angel works too. Well, no, here we pronounce correctly. We say Cynthia Angel. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I encourage people because, you know, Yanez, a lot of people say Yanez, Yanez, like they just, and I'm like, look, if you can say these complicated European names, you can mm-hmm. say Yanez or you can say yeah. Gonzalez, you can say Hernandez, <laughs> you can say Angel, like, come on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you because. You know, it's so important. One of the things that I've been, you know, next year I'm taking the, the podcast on tour and one awesome. of the, the first stops is going to be LA. And one of the things I really want to talk about is representation in media. So I'm super excited to have you here to be able to talk about that and share your story, but let me read the bio. And then we introduce, you know, the vino and all that. Yes. Cynthia Angel is the oldest daughter of Colombian immigrants. Born and raised in Jackson Heights, Queens, Cynthia began her career as a production assistant for a VFX, like a virtual effects, right? Company. Yeah, visual effects. Visual effects. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Within a few months, Cynthia was promoted to production manager and then transitioned into commercial producing, winning Clio's and Cannes Lions for her campaigns for Spotify, Google, Nike, Vivo, and Amazon. Although commercial work proved to be a source of income, Cynthia's deep-rooted love for film led her to found her own creative studios, DLA Films. Focusing on diversity in front of and behind the camera, Cynthia's goal is to bring cinematic and compelling stories to life, all while giving a voice to the voiceless. Sun is Cynthia's first feature-length film project and a continuation of her intention to tell stories of those who come from backgrounds similar to her own. This is real life. Sometimes we just don't say things right. (laughs) (laughs) All good. That was perfect. It happens. It happens. So I'm really excited. But before we get into the chisme, we always start with the wine. And you were saying you don't have a wine opener right now because you're in a hotel in San Francisco. Actually, share the story that you were telling me about the wine that you were going to drink. 
Yeah, so we're working on a project uh, featuring small business owners, and one of them is called Yo También Cantina, and it's a Venezolana and Canadiense that are a couple, and they have this amazing little coffee shop slash food shop slash wine subscription. They do parties, events. They're just super cool. And I picked up a bottle of their wine. This one is called... Achacun Sabule. It's an orange wine. It is French, but they have great taste. So I'm sure it's going to taste amazing once I get my hands on a bottle opener. <laughs> <laughs> so I will cheers you with uh, my Bloody Mary. Yes. Yeah. Hey, you know what? It's it's all good. It's all good. So I was telling you, I um, have this advent calendar, this wine advent calendar from Costco. And every year I want to get it. This year, it was like before, I think it was like the end of October, I went to Costco and it always sells out. So I saw it and I'm like texting my boyfriend. I'm like, should we do this? And I already knew I was yeah. going to. He's like, yeah, yeah, do it. So um, nice. so today, uh, for today, the it's a it's called The Butchery and it's a Cabernet Sauvignon from Moldova. Mm. And it's so crazy because these wines are from all over the places, places you would never think. And that's honestly one of the things I absolutely love about wine is because you discover places through a bottle sometimes, right? You like a hundred percent. I never knew this. I never. So it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I was like, you know what? Like we were discussing today. Today has been a very productive, non-productive day. So that's just what I needed. So now I'm like, okay, now I'm going to continue with the productive non-productivity and have a glass of wine. So, yes. Salud. Salud. Okay. So let me tell you what it smells like. Mm-hmm. It's actually not, it says it's 13% alcohol, but it's, I don't, it's definitely not very alcohol forward. Like I don't <laughs> smell the alcohol very much. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing. We're, we're going to find out by the end of the, of right? the show. Because <laughs> one of these bottles is two glasses. So we'll see. Like, it'll be done. I don't know if by the end of the podcast, but it'll be done before the end of the night for sure. <laughs> I smell star anise. Mm. That's kind of like one of the first things. And like plum. Okay, let me taste it now. Oh, I can definitely taste plum. Like, nice. definitely. Yeah, like that's actually really... Guys, it's actually really good. Either I, there has only been one that I was kind of like iffy on, um, mm-hmm. but that's actually pretty good. But I also am like, I tend to be a cab girl anyway. So, you know. Yes. Cab, um, Pinot Noir, a good one too. Yes. I'm, you know, I, I do drift towards the reds. I do tend to lean towards the reds, but I found that there's some really good white wines. The thing with wine is, it's very subjective mm-hmm. based on your taste buds, based yeah. on the things that you like. I am not somebody who is, who really, I don't, I don't have a fondness for chocolate. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jaw drop. Hey, okay, yeah, I know okay. But you know, I'm much more of a savory than sweet person. Gotcha. And I don't like grapefruit. I love oh, citrus, wow, okay. but I don't like grapefruit. Yeah. So there's certain wines that if it has grapefruit and if I, we were tasting, me and my boyfriend were tasting one of these wines from the advent calendar. And he's like, I smell grapefruit. I'm like, I don't smell grapefruit. I smell apples. Oh, interesting. And then when we looked it up, 
What did it say? It said apples. Yes. <laughs> Expert over here. Yes. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm learning, constantly learning. I don't, you'll, I don't think you'll ever know everything about wine, but the more that you practice and when people are like asking in regards to like, how do you smell the smells? I encourage people anytime you to like, if you're at it's maybe a little bit different now versus what it post COVID versus pre COVID of like grabbing a piece of yeah. fruit, fruit and smelling it or herbs and smelling it. But anytime mm-hmm. you get something that is fresh, like I encourage people to smell it, smell the herbs, smell the fruit, smell mm-hmm. like because your brain will unconsciously kind of file that away. And sometimes you might be like, I don't know exactly what this is, but I recognize it. And there's this wheel I have somewhere over there. Actually, it's right here. Excuse me, everybody. <laughs> I have this wheel. I know I have my freaking. Oh, yeah, not gonna, there we go. Yeah, So basically what it does is it tells you like fruity, spicy, floral, microbi- microbiological, oxidized, chemical, earthy, woody, caramel, nutty. So if you're like, oh, this smells kind of fruity, then you can go into, okay, for the citruses and it tells you like grapefruit or lemon. If it's berries, blackberry, raspberry, black currant, tree fruits, cherry, apricot, peach, apple. Tree fruit is normally also, they tend to refer that to stone fruit, like anything that okay. has like the pits in it. Yeah. So this kind of gives you an idea. So if you're like, I don't know, this kind of smells nutty. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you're not sure what you can look on this little guide and say, oh, you know what? It does smell kind of like almonds or it does kind of smell like this. Earthy usually is like mushrooms and stuff like that. So it's mm-hmm. actually a really cool little tool to have as you're learning about it. And I tend to refer to that a lot when I'm not, sh- especially if I'm not sure exactly what I'm smelling. I got it on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Okay. What's it called again? It's just a, what it like on the back. It's the wine aroma wheel. Wine aroma wheel. Okay. Yeah. And then it even tells you like on the back, it even tells you characteristics. For example, it says Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Malbec, Cabernet Franc, and Red Bordeaux varieties. They tend to have berry, vegetative, or herbaceous. So like bell pepper, asparagus, olives, black pepper, butter, vanilla, so it tells you tends to tell you what tends to be in there. It's not mm-hmm. exact, obviously. Yeah. And Pinot Noir, it tends to be berry, berry jam, vanilla, buttery, spicy, Zinfandel, Syrah, Shiraz, Petite Syrah is berry, black pepper, raisin, soy, butter, vanilla. It's really cool. It's a really cool little tool to have. And so if you're like wanting to learn more about wine Absolutely. and the aromas and, and it's a really cool tool to have and you can get it for under $10. Awesome. Yeah. I'm yes. going to have to check it out. And even as you were reading the Pinot Noir flavors, that makes sense because I like sweet and salty. So sweet and savory combined. Yeah. So that, that sounds just about right. I know. I love that. So I, yeah, it's, I think it's super cool. I'm just, I'm a nerd about that stuff anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I'm trying it. to, you know, I'm trying to be, it's as I'm learning more and more. So like I said, I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you because it's one of those things where you, especially lately, there's been so much discussion in regards to representation 
And what does that actually mean? Within black and brown communities, they're not a monolith, right? We all look mm-hmm. different. We all have different backgrounds. We all like you're from Queens. I'm from San Diego. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, we couldn't have you're Colombian. I'm Mexican. Like, we could not have probably more different ways that we grew up. But there's always mm-hmm. like that some a, a string that kind of connects us all. A hundred percent. And I want to talk to you because in talking, you were in your bio and in your information that you posted, you were really talking about growing up as a first gen and mm-hmm. both of your parents working two jobs to raise yep. you and your sister. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about why your parents first decided to come from Colombia to and settle in New York and Queens? Yeah. And then how you perceived your parents growing up with them mm-hmm. working so much to try and provide. Yes. So my parents actually didn't meet in Colombia. They met in New York. So my father was the first one to come about 35, 36 years ago. And really uh, how that came to be was he grew, he was born in Villa Vicencio, Colombia. And it's a very poor rural town about 45 minutes away from Bogota. And he had five brothers and sisters, and he was the youngest. And he had an older sister, which is my tia Alcira, who was very much the person that decided she was going to come to America to live the American dream. And so my tia, she went to Bogotá to work as a seamstress. And I just found this out because she passed away a few weeks ago. And I knew that she was the matriarch in our family and the reason why we were all here um, from my father's side. But I had never heard the story of how she made it to New York initially. So she she got a job in Bogotá as a seamstress at a television company, which I didn't know that, that that's how the job she had in Colombia. And then from there, she met a friend, which is called... Nuestra tía Balbina Elvia. So the two of them, you know, imagine they're in their um, mid-20s and they're like, let's go to New York and let's do this American dream. And at that time, it was possible to be able to bring your family if you were in the States um, for a certain amount of time. So her plan was that she was going to come to New York and set everything up and then start bringing in um, her kids and the rest of the family. So that's what she did. She moved to New York. She got a job as a seamstress in a factory and she started bringing them one by one. So she had four kids of her own. So she brought her four kids first, then she brought her husband and then she brought my grandmother and my dad. And so they were all living in a one bedroom apartment in Queens. <laughs> and that's, wait, wait. that's my dad. Yeah. Your tia, your tío, your grandma, your dad, and her four kids were all in a one-bedroom apartment? Yes, yes. Ay, 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 oh my gosh. I think I'm crowded with uh, me and the boyfriend and two dogs in my one-bedroom apartment. (laughs) Imagine, imagine. So my dad always tells the story to me because 
obviously it was a moment in time. They were all very excited though to, to, to come and they were all cramped in this apartment. But the plan was that they were all going to get jobs. My dad was in his uh, early twenties. So they were all going to get jobs and they were going to move out and do their thing. So that is what happened on my dad's side. On my mom's side, she grew up in Cali, Bogota. That's where she's from. And she had been married and she had a son, which is my half brother, Jaime. And, um, it didn't work out with his dad. She found out he was cheating on her. She like kicked him out, threw all his clothes out the window and decided she was just going to be an independent woman. Um, back then it was hard for her to get custody of my brother because unfortunately the law did favor um, men more and he made more money on paper. So they, she didn't end up winning custody, which really broke her heart. So she went to my brother on the weekends and, and take care of him in that way. But she decided she was going to come to New York to do like a self evaluation trip where she was going to travel. And she had a tia that lived in Queens. So she went, first she went to Hawaii. She used to work at a, a travel agency. So she booked like this whole like itinerary for just herself where she was going to meet certain people that she knew in certain states. So she started in Hawaii and then she ended up making her way to New York. And in New York, she had a friend that invited her to this party and it was a Colombian party <laughs> in New York city. And that's where she met my dad. So my dad was kicking it to her friend that brought her to the party and my mom was just kind of like whatever at the bar and then my, like, my dad was dancing all the way yeah down. yeah she, <laughs> she was just not really looking for that you know it was like kind of more like this is a trip for me and whatever I would just want to have fun and so my dad noticed her because she was a little bit sadia <laughs> at the bar and he started talking to her. And once he started talking to her, he liked her and he asked for her number. And she was just like, well, weren't you just dancing with my friend? Like, don't you want her number instead? And he thought that was really funny. So that was like the summer of love that they had. They ended up exchanging numbers and she was there for a few months. So they fell in love and she was scheduled to come back to Colombia and he proposed to her before she could come back. He said, stay, stay with me. And I guess she, she was in love with him too. So she said, okay. And so she stayed um, and they got married quickly thereafter. And, and it's interesting because she told me that at first my dad's family was very uh, reticent about her because she had a kid and also because they thought that she wanted the papers for my dad. Uh, it's a coincidence, right? Like she, yeah. he was already set up and, and she didn't have it, but they did fall in love and it was legitimate in that way. And that she wasn't after any of that. So, um, so whatever, they got married and then they had me a year later. And so my parents growing up, they were so hardworking because they didn't get to pursue um, higher education because of the circumstance that they were in. They needed to work to be able to pay rent and they didn't speak the language. So they didn't know English, English they learned later in life. And I think a lot of the English that they learned was as a result of having my sister and I who would speak English at home. But, um, I had a, my grandma, she would take care of us. And my parents used to clean salons, like hair salons. My dad used to drive a taxi. My mom worked at a lavanderia uh, factory and we used to go like my dad 
used to like take us to go pick her up. We would always pick her up from work and then we would always spend the weekends together. So during the week we knew that our parents were working and our grandma was taking care of us. But it was that thing where like our grandma would put us to bed at 8 p.m. And as soon as we would hear the door open around 11 p.m. or midnight, my sister and I would wake up, run out of bed and go sit with them at the table. They were going to have like a late meal before going to bed because dad worked double shifts. So it's interesting because... As I grew up, that was just normalcy for me until you start to realize when you're a little bit older and you're, you have friends and you see the way they live and stuff. I was like, oh, wow. Like my parents work really hard and we're poor, not poor, but like, we're not like rich or middle-class that was interesting what like when I realized and I think because of that I was very considerate to my parents like I didn't want to burden them with like wanting too many things and when I turned 15 I decided I wanted to get a job because I didn't want to ask them to buy me the latest Jordans and whatever because I knew that they were already working two jobs to pay for us to be able to pay rent and our basic needs. But there were things, you know, like when you're in high school, you want to be stunting and you want to be the one with like the Tommy Hilfiger, the, the latest Jordans. So I asked my parents when I was 15, if I could get a worker's permit, if I could get a job. And I guess also just seeing how dedicated they were, um, in the workforce that also inspired me to want to get a job early on too. So that that way I could take care of myself um, for the things that I wanted. And so, yeah, so that's what I did. And, and my sister followed as well. She also got a worker's permit when she was 15 so that she could have a job. So I used to work at clothing stores and blah, blah, blah. my parents just thought it was cute. It got me out, like kept me out of trouble. And yeah. And then I wouldn't have to like ask them, for, for like the things that I wanted to splurge on, which was nice. Um, but yeah, so that's so that, so the question is pretty yeah, long. No, no, no. <laughs> I actually, while I was listening to you, I thought of a couple of like really interesting things. One thing that you said is your dad's family was hesitant about your mom mm-hmm. because they're thinking, oh, she wants papers. And I just was thinking how ironic Right. Mm -hmm. How ironic and how there's even so many Latinos today that they come and your mom came. She didn't she came legally and and Mm -hmm. not to say that people that, you know, there's there are very legitimate circumstances why people want to be here. Right. But what people would say, like (laughs) people, I guess we say white Uh that would Mm -hmm. say she did it the right way or dad did it the right way. But there's even within our own community. Mm-hmm. that there's and it still happens so I just thought that was so interesting that mm-hmm. even 30 plus years ago yeah that was happening and it wasn't like so I just thought that was like my first thought I was mm-hmm. like okay interesting but the fact that they they continue to work so hard and I think there's so many immigrant stories in regards to just people they have to work their ass off they don't speak the mm-hmm. language and I and I found it interesting that you said that you and your sister would talk English at home because a lot Mm -hmm. of my friends would talk Spanish at home. And as soon as they would walk out, talk on the phone with their friends or walk out the door, that's when they would speak English. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese. Given the purchasing power of the Latinx community, 
let me just tell you, mi gente, we are no longer a sleeping giant. And your dollar, our dollar, is powerful no matter where you go. That's why I'm excited to share that in conjunction with Cadena Collective, we have launched a pozole and wine pairing guide. You might think, what? That's interesting. Or what? That's weird. Or what? Heck no, no way. But you know what? We all like to enjoy different things. This truly only featured Latino-owned wine brands have worked really, really hard to provide wines that go with so many of our foods. So if you've even considered trying tamales and wine, or you've even considered trying pozole and wine, head over to the wineandchismepodcast.com, click on media, and there you will find the various resources to pair your wine. What mm-hmm. was your struggle or did you have a struggle in identity in regards to being a Colombian in Queens? Well, I did struggle with identity again. Like it's like around the age, I guess, 10 to 11, when you start to realize you just look at, at life differently. Like you don't have the childhood mentality of like carefree and you don't understand differences. I think before that age, So I was ESL first. So when when I went into grade school, I was in an ESL class because my parents only spoke Spanish. And then I learned English pretty quickly. So that was cool. When my sister was born, then her and I would speak in English. And it's like we would talk to our parents in English to kind of teach them. And then we would speak in Spanish to my grandma because she didn't didn't want to speak in in English. Like that. Um, (laughs) but, but yeah, but it it was that thing where the the interesting thing about Jackson Heights is that there is a big Colombian community. So you didn't feel so other, uh, in those, like in the little cafeteria or the bakery, uh, lots of shops, Colombian shops and things like that. But then when you go to school, you do realize that, oh, you're different because your family doesn't speak English or you're living in an apartment, not a house. And so you're just kind of feel like you're not American, but then you're also not fully Colombian because since we didn't grow up there and we, we didn't go to Colombia, I think till we were like three or four, but that doesn't stick in your memory as much. So it's like, Oh, I'm not fully Colombian. I'm not like my mom and dad because I speak English. I speak this other language, but I'm also not American. So there is that like in between space that then you start to notice more and more as you grow up and you get older and then you're like, Oh, I really don't belong in one or the other. I'm in this in between place trying to figure it out and trying to see where I could fit in. So you do feel like other a lot. And I think my sister's uh, experience was a bit similar, but at least she had me because I was older where I was the one teaching her English and things like that. So I feel like she assimilated a little bit more easily than I did starting out with ESL. And, and then, yeah, it's like when she was born and we had each other, then we would speak in English all the time together, kind of like our secret language and then teach our parents the things that we wanted them to know, but not like things we didn't want them to know. You're like, no, no, no. Don't say that in front of them. (laughs) They won't know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. First of all, what was your first job? You said you by 15, you wanted to get a work permit. What was that first job? I worked for a clothing store in Astoria. 
on Steinway, there's like a high street called Steinway street. And that's where like the strip of all the like clothing and sneaker stores, Wendy's movie theater, all of that. So I wanted to be able to get a discount. I was like very calculated. I was like, okay, (laughs) if I work at this clothing store, I'll be able to get a discount on my jeans, on cakes, on like cute clothes. And it was like a little shop. It doesn't exist anymore. I don't even remember the name, but it was a family owned. And so they had Nike sneakers, they had all brands and stuff. So that was my first job and I was a sales associate. So I I had to be those, uh, like the people that would close, like fold the clothes and restock. And then if someone comes in you ask them if they need help, but I didn't like that job so much because I didn't like asking people if they needed help with a side, like, I didn't want to be on top of people, you know, like they're tell you, Oh, just, you got to follow them. Like you got to make sure that you're like atento. And I'm like, that's so annoying. Like I would not like like (laughs) (laughs) So I would definitely be more on the more chill side. And then they moved me from, that I was like, oh, I'm interested in the cashier, like the numbers and the calculator and doing all of that. So then they moved me to cashier, which I preferred because I thought that that was a little bit less invasive to the customers. Um, And then, so I'm really good at folding my clothes to this day because of that experience. But from there I moved on to I had a friend that worked at a bank. So then I moved on to the bank because since I had the cashier experience, um, I became a bank teller. And so that was more towards later in high school that I was working as a bank teller after school. And then when I went to college, I, uh, I got a job at a refrigerant company as a contracts manager. And this was like a job I found on Craigslist. Like they paid decently and it was in Long Island city. Yeah. It was interesting. I had to take a, like a five page test, uh, the day of the interview. And if you take the test and you get a certain score, then they'll move you on to actually meet the owner of the company and do the interview. If you don't pass the test then they just tell you goodbye. So oh, I passed dang. the test. Yeah. Yeah. I passed the test and, uh, I did the thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah. The interview was like two and a half hours long. I remember I was there like the whole day but I was super happy because it's like an office job like I got this office job even though it was like refrigerant gas or whatever but the experience that I had there and dealing with um government contracts and all that actually ended up helping me later in my now producing career with contracts but yeah that's Those so like that's so funny jobs. The, <laughs> I, you know the job I have now my interview was like two and a half hours and I walked out and I'm like, if I don't get this job after being yeah. there for two damn hours. <laughs> exactly. I remember it was so intense just like with this test and the, yeah, the two and a half hours and I was just like, oh my God. But yeah, they gave me the job and it was a good college job. They were very flexible with me. I made decent, decent. I was pretty low, but at that time and my parents were like so proud because I had gotten this office job at at a young age. So they were happy. Nice. My first job was a cashier at Target. Nice. Did you get a good discount? I'm sure we did. I think everything (laughs) I got, like, I'm sure I did. I don't remember. I mean, girl, that was a long time ago. Yeah. That was literally 30 years ago now. Oh my gosh. Yes. Dang. Okay. I'm sitting 
I'm old, but I don't know. <laughs> no, we're like wine. We age, we age like wine. We get better with that's time. That's right. I that really believe that about Latinas, like for real. Girl, I always get people asking, good. like when I tell them how old I am, they're like, no, no, mm-hmm. there's absolutely no way. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I'm not going to make myself older. I'm not going to be mm-hmm. like, oh yes, mm-hmm. I'm older. No, this is how old I am. Yeah. And now I can, we can just take the experiences that we've had and, you know, like, I don't, I think we spend so much time when we're younger wanting to be older. And I tell any young person in my life, I'm like, don't, you're going to be an adult way longer than you're a kid. Like I tell my nephews this and I'm like, don't be in a rush. Mm -hmm. I know everybody says that, but I promise you like right now you can make mistakes now that you can learn from and that you don't have to make in 20 years. A hundred percent. Or that people aren't going to judge you for now Mm -hmm. where where they'll judge you in 10 years, even of making these, these mistakes. It's okay. And I've, you know, told my cousins, like, take a break. If you need to take a year break from from high school to call, then do it. Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the world is not going to end. Yeah. I wish I knew all of these things when I already listened. Actually, I don't know if I had any people saying like, just be a kid, mm-hmm. but, you know, and I'm the oldest of three girls. So I think in being in a Latin, you know, in a, yeah, family, you don't, mm-hmm. like, you take on like all kinds of responsibilities anyways. Yeah. But, and you don't, they, they don't tend to listen to their parents. So I try and be like the other voice, right? Yes. Yes. Cause I don't have any kids. So I try and be the other voice. Like, no, seriously, you don't want to, you, you realize when you're an adult, you have to start paying your own bills, right? Like the things that aren't uh-huh. fun, you realize you need to start paying your own bills. It's like, so I promise true. you, you don't want to pay your bills. Yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I don't want to pay my bills. Rush, like I don't want to live at home with my parents. And then you're like in the reality of what it's like to truly be independent. You're like, oh shit. My oh, mom girl. is right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is so true because now I'm like, man, why was I in such a hurry to get out of my mm-hmm. parents' house? Mm-hmm. Why was I in such, like, my parents weren't telling me to get out of the house. Oh my God. No, I'm like, sure they would want you to stay like until you're this age now. Yes. Like, oh my gosh. So when I moved <laughs> back to California from Dallas mm-hmm. and I, you know, was staying with my parents, but staying with your parents in your forties is very different. It was just yeah. like, okay, I was looking for a job. I got mm-hmm. a job. I moved out. I had a roommate and then I moved back home because the lease had ended and I was, wasn't sure where I was going to go. And so my mom, of course, Miha, why don't you come back home? Just stay here. Yeah. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I said, but I was like, okay, six months, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like that's my max. I'm moving, whether it's, I'm moving back to Dallas, whether it's moving back to San Diego, because my parents live in Orange County now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I am six months, six months. I was back in San Diego. Nice. I just can't. I love my parents so much, (laughs) but you know, I spent so many years, like 15 years in a different state as them Mm -hmm. that I can't be that close to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, (laughs) I feel Then they'll be over all the time. At least my mom. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When, right? Yeah. yeah. So please continue to tell the young people in your life, do not grow up too fast. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Well, yeah, and so tell them like just enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. this time because then right. it's gone and you're gonna miss it. Really right. live it up, yeah. I know. Ugh, I wish. I wish. I think we like. I don't want to go through my twenties again, mm-hmm. but if I had to go through my like teenage years again, if I could just know then what I know now, mm-hmm. yeah. just to appreciate it so much more. Yes, you know. Agreed. But it's okay. That we all have our own journeys and I, my journey is what has led me here. Of course. And also I think that that's just like life, right? The nature of life and, and that philosophical thing that of course we wish we had the knowledge and the money that we have now when we were younger, but you kind of have to go through this journey to get that wisdom. And there's, it wouldn't work out that way anyway. If, If you did have it, life would be, I don't know, would be a different species probably. (laughs) who knows that's a story you can tell there you go (laughs) so you talk about you didn't discover theater in in drama until you got into college Mm -hmm. but what about in high school what were the things that really appealed to you in high school that made you even choose the college you went to and then discover drama yes you like that thread how I went through that yes I love it Um, so in high school, you know, I went to a public school and I grew up in Queens during the golden era of hip hop. So I was really into hip hop culture. Like I loved Puff Daddy, Mace, DMX. So I was very into like the hot 97. Uh, Yes. RIP. His documentary is really good, by the way, if you haven't watched it yet. It's a little sad, but, uh, but yeah, DMX, I was like, I had him on posters all over my room. Um, but I didn't think that because I didn't ha- really have anyone in my family that was college or like had graduated from college, not that many people and, um, and weren't, didn't have like careers per se in my immediate family. It's not something that I really knew. And I think it's at that age too growing up in working class public school, you're a little bit lost because you're caught up in that moment of trying to be cool and just focusing on, on different things, not really so much your future. So I loved movies though. And we had a blockbuster and my dad used to take us like every Friday night to pick out the movies that we wanted to watch. And then we would do that over the weekends. And then I would rewind them on Sunday and take them be back kind, on Monday. Be before kind, school. rewind, remember? Yes, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Especially because we always wanted to rent more than one movie. So my dad's like, if you don't rewind and if you don't return it on time, I'm going to get charged late fees. And I was like, okay, I don't worry. I <laughs> promise. So that was like my duty. But I saw this movie called Silence of the Lambs, and that one really stuck with me. It's one of my favorite movies. Jonathan Demme is the director. And if you are familiar with it, it's about a working class woman who becomes a detective. She's training and she gets a case, which is the Hannibal Lecter case for the FBI. Yeah. And um, she gets the Hannibal Lecter. So Clarice, her character, I was very drawn to, to her character and I loved that movie. So when I was going to graduate high school, I was like, I want to be like Clarice. And my parents couldn't afford to send me away to college. And I really didn't know what to do to go away to college. Like, you know, you watch the movies where you see that everyone like goes away for college and has a college campus life and whatnot. That just did not seem 
like a reality. It was so far removed from my life experience. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to get financial aid. Um, I have a job, which was the, the bank job at the time. And I was like, that's not enough money um, to pay for like the difference of what financial aid will cover. So then that's when I got the contracting uh, job and I decided to go to night school And because I loved Clarice and her character so much, I wanted to be Clarice. So I was like, I want to catch the bad guys. I'm going to study forensic psychology. There was John Jay School of Criminal Justice. So I was like, I'm going to go to John Jay. I'm going to study criminal justice. And I'm going to become like a detective. And I'm going to catch the bad guys and save people. So that's what I did. I I applied. Well, I went to LaGuardia for one year because I had to get my grades up because I was a little bad, too, in high school, you know, like hanging out with cool kids, cutting schools, smoking and a little lost. Um, And because my parents work so much, I could get away with it. And my mom, she would be like, like, I knew exactly what to do to get just enough good grades so that teachers wouldn't call my parents, but she would like always know somehow that I was being sneaky about, about something. But, but yeah, I had to get my grades up to be able to get into John Jay. So I went to LaGuardia community college, which is a two year school to get my grades up. So I had a plan. I was like, I want to be clear. Sciences lands. I have to get into John Jay, but I need to get my grades up. So for the first year of college, I went to LaGuardia. I got my grades up. I like focused. I got transferred into John Jay. And then I started my forensic psychology uh, journey in, in school. But the rude awakening was once I was getting deep into like my third year, it was very depressing. And it was, um, I couldn't be, uh, objective with the cases. I was getting very like attached to victims and things like that. And I was starting to feel like I didn't know that that was exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life anymore. I think the fantasy of the movie became a rude awakening when you're like actually in it and studying it. And it's, not a movie it's reality so I took some elective classes and that's when I took my drama class and a speech class and that was when I met Professor Donaldson who he was a big inspiration and a big mentor in helping me discover that what I really was into was how that movie made me feel and that what I really wanted to do was to also create something that would inspire someone in in some shape or form. So yeah, that's when I decided I wanted to be a producer and that I wanted to make movies. And at that time with Donald, I'm very grateful for him. He kind of became like a mentor and he would be a little bit hard on me too. He would say, you know, you're really cute and witty, but you're not going to be that all your life. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do to, to have your career? Like you need to read more, you need to read newspapers, you need to read books And that really sunk in for me because until then I was just kind of not really focused in a way on, on what the career move was, or I didn't really have that. I needed someone to tell me that to read more because you need to be educated and you need to be able to speak and you need to be able to be well-informed. So you're trying to tell stories about people, right? It's hard to have a perspective if you're not reading anything to create a perspective outside of your own. Mm -hmm. So you wanting to produce films and everything, and obviously you have somebody who's, who's pushing you and probably pushing you into uncomfortable places. Yes. A hundred percent. Which is, I think so important because 
no movement happens in the comfortable, right? Like, just mm-hmm. like when you get comfortable on the couch, I kind of related to this. When you get comfortable on the couch, you don't want to go anywhere. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to happen as long as you stay comfortable on that couch. It's true. But you see changes when you get off the couch and get yep. out of your house and move and do things that, you know, so that's kind of what I equate it with, right? Is that comfort zone? Mm-hmm. What What was it exactly about the producer role that really intrigued you to say, okay, I want to be a producer, not a director, not a cinematographer, not anything else, but a producer of all things. I think it was a combination of knowing what my strengths were. And also, I think because when I started studying it more during these uh, elective classes, I loved that the producer's the one that's putting it all together and the one that is dictating who's going to direct, who's going to write, who am I going to hire to put this production together? And because I had worked at a bank or as cashier or was interested in numbers and things like that, I thought, okay, I could actually be good at that, like at handling a budget managing a budget and then putting a team together. I I do have to say that I, I wish maybe that my, I was a little bit more free with my creativity, but I didn't have that ego or that thing of, oh, I want to be a director because I didn't feel free in that way or that I thought that my imagination would be worth sharing, if that makes sense. Like I knew that I wanted to, creates, but I didn't have that, I guess, maybe confidence that like, I'm going to be a director. I feel it's the certain people that they know they want to direct since they're young and they have that voice and, and can do that. But I, I, I didn't have that kind of personality. I had more of the, uh, I can put things together. I can support and hold someone's hand through a process. And I thought that a producer would be, yeah, the thing that I would like to do also because I used to watch the Oscars and I'm like, one day I want to win the best producer. Like, I don't know. I was just more drawn to the producer role. And now that I have been producing for so many years, I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of interested in directing, you know, but initially it was just, I want to produce documentaries. I want to produce movies. And then the reality ended up being that I started producing was commercials and branded content and things like that which has been great. It feels so surreal now to actually be doing it. Like right now I'm in San Francisco and I'm producing this commercial for clients. And I'm like, I don't know. It was was such like a a pipe dream back then in college. Cause even I used to tell Donaldson I'm too old. Like I've already studied, like I've spent three years on this major, like, how am I going to start over? Like, you know, like when you're that age, you don't realize it's not the end of the world. And you think everything is, and I was so young and he was like, what are you talking about? You're going to graduate from here and you're going to apply to production assistant jobs and you're going to get a job and, and that's how you're going to do it. And I was like, but I didn't go to film school. And he's like, it's okay. You don't have to go to film school. So it was good to have someone there that, yes, is pushing you out of your comfort zone and letting, opening that door of possibility, um, which is really like what, what he did. Yeah, no, I love hearing that because I feel like no matter what we, whatever role we decide or whatever career, whatever path we decide to take you do need somebody who's going to advocate for you. You do need Mm -hmm. somebody who's going to be 
you know, what a mentor really is, is somebody who's not only going to advocate for you, but who's going to tell you the truth, right? Yeah. They're not just going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to be like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, you need to look for this or you need to do this or you need to like, or, or, you know, have you thought about these things? Have you thought about mm-hmm. this? And especially when you, you know, you've talked about life as a Latina, getting an indie film off the ground, trying to mm-hmm. open doors. And honestly, it was, if you don't have somebody in your corner, that could be even that much harder. Mm-hmm, um, 100%. So what was the first, like, kind of walk us through the process of, okay, you've decided you're going to be a producer. You're switching your whole, like you're switching everything, which is mm-hmm. like, oh shit. I'm sure you're like, like you're saying, like, what the hell? I'm totally, yeah. I've already put three years into this. Now I'm completely shifting gears. Walk us through like, okay, now you've decided this, this is the path you're going to pursue and how being a Latina in this industry affected how that was happening. Yeah. Well, it was hard at first because even though I had my professor giving me all this confidence, the reality was that I did not know anyone in the industry. I didn't know like where to start, but luckily there were, there was the internet and there was a a website called mandy.com and then there was Craigslist. And so I just, once the the thing about me is like, once I get an idea in my head of like, I want to do something like me pongo las pilas and that's it. Like I'm going to go 100 on it because when I'm telling my parents that, Oh, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to do the forensic psychology anymore. And they're like, what? And everyone's kind of like, what, what are you talking about? Then that gives me a little bit of ammunition to prove to everyone that I can do the crazy thing that I'm thinking about. So when I graduated, I started applying to every production assistant job I could find online. And I would also look in newspapers, you know, how they have the ads and stuff. And I would just draft up my email. I created a resume and I didn't, I only had the con the like the refron, which was the contract management stuff. I still had that as a job and I was listing that and that's not film experience, but this company gravity, they answered my mandy.com application and invited me to come in for an interview. And, the, and I was applying to entry-level jobs, like production assistant, office manager and VFX in, in production companies, anything, right. That could get me in that I, I knew I wasn't going to be a producer off the bat. I knew I had to learn and work my way up. So gravity brought me in for an interview and the woman that interviewed me, her name was Ifat. She was Israeli. She was lovely. Like she was like beautiful, well-dressed woman. And she had a heavy accent and she was like, she felt, I think she thought I was very charming because I was like, I want to be a producer and I'm here to learn and I'm willing to do double shifts. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work super hard. If you have a little trust in me, I know I don't have experience. I was very candid with her that I didn't have experience, but that I was very eager and excited to, to get going. And then she brought in uh, executive producer Camille, who was her partner in the company. And she was like, well, you know, this is not a producer job. Like you're going to be the receptionist. And I don't know if you're going to become a producer. Like, I don't know what you're expecting. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not expecting to become a producer overnight. I know it's a receptionist job, but I feel like I can learn. I can learn from you and I can learn from the people that work here. And that's what I'm here to do, to learn and to, and to grow. 
And so she was like, oh, okay, fine. And then, um, I left that interview, not knowing if I was going to get the job. And I was getting a little bit stressed out because I wasn't getting a lot more interviews either. <laughs> a lot of people were calling me back because I didn't have the experience. So I was like, Oh my God, is this actually going to pan out for me? I remember I went to central park and I had lunch by myself, like looking over the water, like, am I making the right choice? Like eating a sandwich. And then two days later, Ifat called me and she said, we loved you. You're great. Can you start next week? And I was so excited. I was just like jumping up and down, like, I'm going to be a producer, you know, even though it's a receptionist job. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that confidence, a- <laughs> though. I love that confidence. You're like, all I need to get is my foot in the door and I'm a producer. Yeah. I'm going to be a producer. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But it was also interesting because going back to what you were saying, uh, being a Latina, it's like I had to change the way I dress. There was definitely no other Latinas in the room there. Everybody there was Americano or European white. That was the majority of the company. And he fought, I guess I felt comfortable with her because she did have the accent, like the, the, she was Israeli and whatnot. So she was kind of like the one that I was drawn to and that, uh, really took me under her wing. Um, and then the, the other, the other members of the company, they were all great, but I did kind of feel like, Oh, I have to lean more into like, not like into being like that. Like I have to wear the nice shoes and like, I couldn't wear my Jordans to work. And it's so funny now present day, like how everybody wants to streetwear and all of that because I used to be a hype bay when I was in high school (laughs) and college like I had the latest Jordans I had like the I had the fresh gear but I couldn't bring that into the workplace I had to kind of change do you feel like you had to image like like hide your latinidad when you were there a little bit yeah I did in the beginning because especially with the it was a receptionist. So I was the first person that people were going to see when they came in. And then also I had to do client services, which in post-production at that time, I don't know if they still do this, especially post COVID, but at that time it was like, uh, the agency would come in for reviews and you have to take their order and then you have to plate their food and you have to bring it into them. And everything has to be perfect because they're here to have this like very nice experience while they're reviewing shots and things like that. So I had to do that. So I was kind of taking my cue of just observing like how everybody else was dressed in the office and, um, and how they would act. And I was like, okay, like I have to be like this, like, yes, I can't talk in my slang. I have to speak properly. Um, and I can't dress, you know, or like I, I couldn't have like my huge hoop earrings and my gelled hair and my Jordans on with like, jeans and stuff you know I was like I went to express to buy clothes for the job and to what was the other store limited that had like yes like I went to those <laughs> like I remember when I got the job I told my mom I was like I have to go shopping for this job because I have to dress professionally uh, I already knew where you're going express and limited <laughs> go hand in hand <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it took a while for them to start to see Cynthia you know the company and then once they did like I started having, I managed the playlist also since I was a receptionist. So I would start sprinkling in like some hip hop songs or some like Spanish songs to see like if anyone would notice or say anything and people started liking it. And then like once I was about like a year and a half, two years in, then that's when I became more comfortable, like wearing my big Brazilian earrings and, like, and things like that, like being more like Cynthia. 
So there definitely was a, a simulation period, but the majority of the producers were white and I did feel like maybe they didn't like me very much or they were unsure of me. I don't know. It was very best behavior. You have to be on your best behavior. You have to be, you can't make mistakes. And that was the kind of like the, the environment. And so, um, I was able to move my way up just by like working double shifts. I started taking on like more tasks. So I was like, Oh, I could do the production status. Like I could do the sheets and Oh, I'll help you with this and that. You know, when I saw that producers were working late, I would ask them if I could take on things to help alleviate their plate. And then that's how they started giving me more production coordinator tasks. And then eventually they moved me from the desk to the back to production coordinate, which again was like super exciting. Cause I'm like, okay, yes, it's like paying off. The hard work is paying off. Cause you, sometimes you don't know, like everyone tells you like, what got to work hard and that's the only way you're going to make it. And you're, when you're in it, you're like, am I actually going to get to that next step to that next level? And then when you do, you're like, oh, yes, okay. That effort was worth it. I got to keep going more effort. How many years did it take you before you actually got to was it something that you had to do on your own in regards to producing something for the first time? Were you working mm-hmm. for a company for the first time when you got that first break to be a producer? And when you finally did, was there any imposter syndrome that came with that? Oh my God. Yes, definitely. Working at the VFX company, I was always at at the service of the company and the projects that we were working for and the other producers. So even there, like I grew from production coordinator to production manager and it was VFX. So we're one of the last processes before final delivery of a film. So when I got to production manager, I would report to a producer. So I didn't have autonomy in that way. But at that time I met my partner, who's my partner now when I was production managing and he was director and he and I were talking for about a year. Yeah. A year before we became like serious couple. And then when we were together, he knew about my dreams of being a producer, but he knew that I was just kind of working at this VFX company. And I was looking for what the next move was. Cause I wanted that. I wanted to produce something like actually do it. And so he asked me if I would produce a music video for him. And I remember like when he first asked me, I was like, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Like, I've never done it before. And he's like, it's easy. Like you're smart, you're pretty. So you could get good deals and you'll be good at it. He's like, I know that you'll be good at it. And I was like, I don't know. I'm so nervous. Like what if I mess it up? So there's like where the imposter syndrome comes in, where even though I had been working my way up and even though I was acquiring skills, I still didn't feel like I could do it. Even though I wanted to do it, I was just like, okay. And so he's like, I'll, I'll show you. Cause he had produced stuff for himself. He was producing directing. So and he's like, well, it's going to do it my way though. It's going to be kind of guerrilla style. It's not going to be like a corporation, <laughs> but he, he was willing to give me the chance because yeah, a, other company, I don't know that they would have been like, yeah, you can produce something if you've only done post-production. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And so he had this music video and it's for this indie uh, rock band or like not indie rock. They're like indie um, punk band and they were really cool. They were his homies. So there was not a lot of pressure in that regard. And and he was like, all right, here's a budget. Um, you know how to work with numbers. So it's like, basically you have to get everything within the budget. And I was like, yeah, duh. But um, 
I was learning how to reach out to crew members. Like, how do you know what crew members you need and negotiating equipment rental lists and all of that stuff. And at first I was so shy to negotiate and ask for discounts or, um, things like that. Uh, so that was a big learning experience, but I was so grateful to him because he did again, like another expander. He was just like, yeah, you got this. Like, don't worry. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, don't put so much pressure on it. Like you can do it. And so I produced his music video. It was so much fun. It was a great time. And then, um, once I did that, I, I decided that I wanted to move on from the VFX company because I needed to now go to the production side of things. So now I had that little uh, credit in my resume. I started applying to freelance jobs at different production companies with the post experience and then uh, moving on to the production experience. So that's kind of how I segued into that. Yeah. So how long did it take for you to say, okay, you know what? I'm at this point where I want to start like my own thing. And first of all, why were you, why was it so important for you to start DLA film, films? What does DLA stand for? And I, I know I keep asking like multiple questions, but I just want to make sure I get it all out because I don't want to forget because this is so fascinating to me. I've had a director on before, like a Latino mm-hmm. director a while ago, and he was ta- talking about representation. He's own, um, a Dominicano and everything mm-hmm. like that. So from this standpoint and from a Latina, I've not heard this. So that's why I'm just so fascinated and interested in that. So one, what does DLA stand for? And what prompted you to be like, okay, I need to start my own company mm-hmm. at whatever point that was? Yeah. So I free, I freelanced for a while and I was getting more production producer, like production manager than producer gigs. And then I started working for a brand directly. So my freelance career took, I I was in Gravity for three and a half years. Then I went freelance and I started freelancing, bouncing around, learning as much as I could from different production companies um, for about two and a half years. And in between there on the side, I was producing these small music videos and like side projects with my partner. And then I went in-house at a brand. And so DLA first started out as like just an LLC between my partner and I, where we were, um, we would freelance. So sometimes like the billing was easy and DLA stands for De Los Artes. (laughs) It was just like a little joke, uh, between, uh, my partner and I, because he has, he has his initials are DL and my last name is A. And I was like, Ooh, de los artes. And he's like, Oh, and that's also like our initials too. And I just liked the way it looked. And mm-hmm. my friends who I actually worked with at the production company at the VFX company, Brian, he, one day I was like, Oh, can you make a logo like DLA with a circle? Like I wanted to use the font from alien. Cause I love Futura. And I was like, I want to see like how it would look as a logo. And he created, which is still our logo now. And I loved it. And I was like, Oh, it looks so good. And so that's it. Like I tabled it, put it on the side. I went in-house at a company and I was working as a, as a client now hiring production companies. And I was just noticing that there was just such a lack of representation. I definitely grew more confident in being my true Cynthia self 
um, as the years went on and as I got more experience. And I did notice that there just wasn't a lot of representation within the companies that I was working at and just within the companies that I was hiring when I was on the client side. Usually when I was freelancing at these different places, I felt like there were only like a few of us brown people and we would always find each other and become friends. There was this one production company that I worked at, which they don't exist anymore. Um, they merged. So it was Mass Appeal, Decon, and that was like in five, six years ago. And that was the one place that I was like, oh, there's a lot of diversity here. And it was a, it's a hip hop magazine. So I was like, I felt at home there. And that was cool. So then I, after that, I went in-house at a at an agency. And there I felt like the creative team wasn't diverse enough. And I remember asking my boss, like, hey, when are we going to get like some Black copywriters and creative directors, some Latinos in the house? And they were just kind of like, Ugh! like looking at me like I had three heads. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I think it's important. And um, and then they started making some more diverse hires. And I remember they were like, oh, you're going to be so happy. We brought in these teams. And I was just like, I don't think it's just for me to be happy. I think it's for the goodness of the entire company, you know? Like, right. So that passive aggressiveness or like microaggression of like, that was starting to get to me, like seeing like, like the politics and then seeing that there was a lack of representation. I wanted to hire more people of color. I wanted to find the Latin owned company, the black owned company. And at that time it was so hard. Like I remember I was working on a black history is happening now campaign. I'm looking for a black director and the creative director on that project was not black. And he, I sent him a list of directors and the ones that I found they didn't have the experience he was looking for because they didn't have the opportunity. Right. And he's like, why aren't you giving me more options? And I was like, well, these are the people of color that I have found that fit the campaign. And he was like, we're not telling the story about the people behind the camera. So you don't have to only show me people of color as options. And I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, yeah. And that is that so moment, disheartening to hear. Yeah. And at that moment, I was like, that's it. I'm done with this. I need to start my own thing. Like, this is not the way. So that was at 2019 when, when that was all going down. And so I told my partner, you know, he was still directing. He had a little collective. We were getting, we were getting um, stronger in terms of our community of filmmakers and, and friends that were on the come up and very diverse group of storytellers where I was like, I want to leave. Like, I want to leave this corporate side of things. I want to create something. I was like, I didn't know how to express it in words, but I was like, I want to create something. I think there's opportunity. I think there's opportunity for our voices and to grow and nurture people like us to work on these campaigns, but I need to do it. Like I actually need to do the work to start it because I don't know who else is going to do it. Like if I'm looking for this, someone else must also be looking for this too. Yeah. And so I, I want to kind of yeah. share some of the, the now with the LA, cause I want to get to sun, right? <laughs> like when you go to the work that you guys have done, Nike, Amazon, you've done something with bad, you know, there's a bad bunny reference in here. Um, Etsy, Spotify, the Ikea story of a personal space. There's, you know, music videos, commercials, 
all of these different things that DLA has been a part of. One thing that I see that is kind of a common thread, most of them, like there's something for um, Spotify, which is with Ed Sheeran. But the fact is like, I'm seeing so many, so many diverse spaces, bodies, colors, Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this, that you don't normally see. And I think that is something that's so unbelievably important. So I I think that is awesome that you had all of these opportunities. And from what I said, it sounds like is with DLA, you're not only, you're not only want to make sure you're telling the stories that come from communities of color, but ensuring that the people that are behind the camera are coming from communities of color as well. Correct. Of course. Absolutely. Because the only way we have diversity is not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Absolutely. Like, I think it's so important. And also it's just like about having that. It can't, you won't have an authentic connection if, if the people behind the camera aren't attuned or aware of the nuances to the audience, right. That whatever brand is trying to target or to connect with you, it's very important that in front of and behind the camera that you have that understanding and that care. I think that for me, like growing up in Jackson Heights, which is a melting pot of rich culture and many diverse groups, that's what I wanted to create with CLA. Like I wanted us to have like a diverse family of filmmakers that are creating with intention and care. And I think that when you do it that way, then it hits a little bit closer to the heart of whoever's watching. Maybe they'll remember it or maybe they'll appreciate it and they'll see like the love that was put poured in into it. And sometimes I feel like when the people are not culturally relevant, they don't care as much, you know, I was totally just thinking Mm -hmm. that like you can have diversity in front of the camera, but if there's not diversity behind the camera, the -hmm. story is probably not going to be as it's not going to be authentic. It's not going to be heartfelt because they don't know the experiences. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, sorry. I don't, no, 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 I wanna, no, no. But I want to make sure we get to sun. I want to make know, sure we get to sun. I know, it's getting so good. It's like, <laughs> what time is it? I, I know, I'm having such a good time talking to you. Like, <laughs> I'm like, but we need to get to sun because I really want to be yes, yes. talking about that. <laughs> so sun is your first feature length film project. Yes. Tell us about it. Tell us like, what is sun about? When is it available? How can people see it? Like, give us all the chisme on Sun. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so Sun is our first feature film production. It's totally indie. It's a total DLA production. I'm super inspired by Spike Lee's model, making his own stuff without the influence of studio because he had full creative control and then any um, money that he made off of the film was coming back to him and to his people. So that was really uh, important for me. So 20 end of 2019, I asked my partner to write a good horror script. Then is a horror film. It is about an artist that lives in Brooklyn who is very talented, but has a lot of trauma that is unprocessed. And it starts to manifest with the pressures wanting to be successful. So I think it's something that a lot of us can can relate to. 
it takes place over the course of one night. It's a it's a psychological horror film, so it's not gory, but it all takes course over the place of one night and the experience that the main character is having. He basically starts to unravel over the course of this night. Him and his partner go to a party, an advertising party that he does not want to go to. There's an obnoxious creative director that's basically, you know, like kind of pushing his his buttons and he starts to see things that are kind of freaking him out. And his wife is utterly annoyed at him. They get into an argument and she storms off and ends up getting attacked on this event, like bridge late at night. Um, and disappearing. So he is trying to find her for the rest of the night. But as he goes into the night, it starts to get more nightmarish and more things start to come up, which are all his unprocessed traumas and feelings. And then finally, he makes it back home. I don't want to ruin what happens, but he has all of these misadventures. And it's like he's going deeper and deeper into this New York City night of craziness and and debauchery and then he finally gets back home and has like a showdown with his with his wife where he has to do the final confrontation of what what's the thing that has been that he's been suppressing that he needs to finally release in order to move on and to to give birth to to the life that he's meant to have with his wife so yeah it's a it's a psychological horror film uh the lead character is a brookup dancer which is a dance that originated in brooklyn and it's really like uh came from jamaica and made its way to new york and it's a broken dance so they express pain and emotion through their bodies through dance and and the reason why we wanted to use this art form was to express the traumas that our body sometimes hold on to that we don't know that you need to release it's if you've read the book, Body Keeps the Score, it's something that kind of touches on how you have, to, like your body holds on to certain things. And so we thought that with this broke up dance, it was a good expression of that. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Like the, the cast was incredible. He's from Cordell, who's the main character, is from Brooklyn. He's a father of 12. He's an incredible oh dancer. <laughs> yeah. Ghost, who plays the villain, he's also from Brooklyn. They're like incredible artists and they haven't had their day because the industry, again, like just going back to like this place of providing opportunity, the industry sometimes can can fetishize or can, you know, have a, a dancer in a commercial or whatever. But like, what do you do to support and tell the stories of these people that are truly artists? And that's what we wanted to do with this film. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited about about that coming to life because it's self-funded and the pandemic hit has taken longer to finish it, but we're pretty much locked picture. We finalized the score. So all we have to do now is do color grading is what it's called. Mm -hmm. So we color correct the film and then our final sound mix, and then we master it and we're going to start submitting it to film festivals. And then, doing screenings and hopefully make it onto a streaming service. But I do want some sort of theatrical, like if we could get a three theatrical release, even if it's for a couple of weeks, like that would be the biggest dream come true. Like seeing yeah. something that I've made in a theater. I have an I- 
Yeah, in my head. Oh, I always do this. I always do this. Because I'm going to be, I'm taking the podcast on tour next year. Mm -hmm. Okay. LA, Dallas, New York. I'll be in New York. Yes. And then bringing it home. Yes. Okay. And depending on when it's done, maybe we could work together to be able to do like oh my God, yes. a screening at wherever mm-hmm. the locations are. Maybe if anybody wants to, I don't know, let's, we'll figure this out. We will figure yes. it out. Maybe we can work together to do like a screening for it as well. Yes, I would love that. Like, I definitely want to get it out there. I think that it's very relatable to people like us and yeah, I think it's very going to be very enjoyable. It's like a ride. Like you're yeah. like in for a ride. I just as decided as... to give myself more work <laughs> on top of everything else. <laughs> Let's do it. I want to get it out there and I want to do all these screenings. And there's like, the cast is so amazing. Like for them to be able to, like for real, like my dream is that when we're touring it, that Cordell can come with his wife. His name, her name is Iris. And obviously like she's a powerhouse because they have 12 kids and she's just blew up like on TikTok over the past year and a half, um, which is pretty insane. Um, but yeah, like my dream is to have him there with all his kids watching the film and like seeing like what his dad did, you know, like yeah. he, at the he very least it. we need to do something when I'm, when we're in New York. At the very absolutely, least. absolutely, a hundred percent. And I want to also do a screening in LA too. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, on that as well. For sure. Oh my gosh! You know that the Latino Film Festival is here in San Diego. We have a Latino oh, Film Festival here in okay. San Diego. Okay, I have to look into it. Yeah, yes. I'm gonna so. apply to every single film festival I can find. Really, um, but obviously it's horror genre too. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. I'm sure. Yeah, but film I think thrillers that. end up being something a little bit different. Who is your in? Like I know you said Spike Lee. You loved like his formats, like in regards to. But who? work wise, like film wise, who else, who else have been your inspirations in regards to continuing what you're doing or, or maybe like loving the way that they like, you like the films that they are part of. Yes. So big inspirations for me, definitely Spike Lee's is uh, up there in terms of creativity, like Alejandro Jodorowsky who he's very surreal and just really pushed the envelope of of creative expression and filmmaking. David Lynch is a big inspiration. Oh, you're like, a, had... you're like the Twin Peaks person. Yes. Yes. Twin Peaks. The, he was the first one to do that with Twin Peaks, like to kind of do that telenovela format, that like drama on the mm-hmm. screen as a show. I love David Fincher and what David Fincher did with his, like he started his own production company and, and does really beautiful work and is consistent in terms of his vision. Also Christopher Nolan, because Christopher Nolan works a lot with his wife, who's a producer and now they have Syncopy. And so like, they're a big inspiration where he kind of has the movies that he wants to make and the studio does not mess with him. Like they do not have say on, on what he's doing. And then in terms of directors, Oh, I also really love Pedro Almodivar. Like, I love all of his movies. Uh, I love his sensibility. And in terms of who's doing it in the way, like running a business and and being in there, she's different because she writes and stars in her own stuff, right? Issa Rae 
with insecure and stuff, but I really admire her journey in the industry and how she's come up. I think for me, it's like about finding the space of how does Cynthia do it and how does, how do I fit in when, once it's time for sun to come out? Cause I feel like, yes, we're doing the commercial work. We're doing the branded work of people are starting to know about DLA on this side of things. But now it's like now breaking into the actual film world, navigating that space and, and doing that. And, and yeah, like you said, when uh, looking at the work that we do, it is very distinct. So hopefully it's appreciated on, on that side, yeah. you know? We have to do a part two because yeah. <laughs> still so much. I'm like looking and, and things I've talked about and I'm like, oh, I have another question. Oh, I have another question. And literally this could be like a three hour episode easily. <laughs> San Francisco work again, I need to be like, mindful of everybody's time, our time, the of listeners, time, like everybody's time. But I really want like, once it's done and once it's released, like let's, I would love to do a part two because there's yes. still so many more questions I have that I really want to ask and that we didn't even touch on it all, but we've literally just, it's, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Oh, um, I'm so grateful. Yes. You've been amazing. I love your questions and just the conversation that we've been having it's been fluid and it's been, well, you know, really honestly, I, I'm just a natural, like curious person. Yeah. So I don't even write questions anymore oh, I love it. <laughs> because I want it to be a real conversation. I will look and sometimes I'll write notes of like, Oh, don't forget this, but it always really truly just depends on how the conversation is going. Right. And I, then I make mental notes of like, Oh wait, I want to go back to that. Oh wait, I want to go back to that. But I appreciate everybody's time. Like it's because I have such amazing guests who have such wonderful stories. It makes my job very easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always give everybody an opportunity to share something that maybe they, we are going to for sure do a part two. We have to like, Absolutely. But is there anything else that you want to share that maybe we haven't touched on at all before we close out? I guess for the people listening, I I hope that my story can, can help if someone's out there feeling lost or feeling like they can't start a new journey into something that they're passionate about, that it's never too late. You're never too old. And you really have to just have confidence in yourself and believe in yourself and and give yourself the chance to explore that whatever that is, that's calling to you, because it could be the key to unlocking like what you're meant to be doing. And absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And don't let uh, the naysayers hold you back. Don't let your experience. If life has been hard, like don't let that be a reason to not try because you never know where it can lead and, and what you can unlock. And, and you could have that happiness if, if that is something that you're looking for. So, yeah. So that's always like my message to everyone is just like, go for it. Like we have this one life and we never know when we're going to go. So you might as well give it your all and, and take those risks and make the jump and try to live the best life that you can, because one day it won't be here. So make the most out of it and, and don't, don't set your dreams aside, prioritize them, like really look for what is that thing that makes, brings me joy and makes me happy. Because once you unlock that, you will spread the joy and happiness to others. And, 
and you'll live a, a good life. That's a great way to end it. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cynthia, thank you so, so oh, much you, for Jessica. sharing your journey. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I wanted to continue. <laughs> I know. I feel like we could talk for hours. So I know. I'm super grateful for you, Jessica, for the opportunity and for, for letting me um, share. And I look forward to staying in touch and seeing also where the podcast goes. I think it's really incredible what you're doing. And yeah, I'm, I'm super grateful. Thank you. Well, until next time, mi gente. Ciao. Besos. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheese on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheese Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheese please subscribe, rate, and review. Five star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.